I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Mark Anthony Neal. He is chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at Duke. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Neal. Thanks for having me, Alexander. Do you like the characterization of a third reconstruction for the current movement uh, to achieve racial equality? Do you like that construct of the third reconstruction? You know, in the sense of trying to put everything that's happened over the last few years in a historical context, um, I believe that it works. Um, you know, I'm comfortable with that formulation, you know, thinking about from slavery to freedom, um, which is really from slavery to, to citizenship in this moment now, which seems to be this tension between what we might think of as citizenship and, and some idea or ideals about freedom. Do you think that it is the most helpful intellectually or politically construct, or is there something that you prefer? You know, it's when I think about the Reconstruction era, um, and particularly for those folks that it most dramatically impacted, um, who, who just knew that they wanted some semblance of a life that was different than the one that they had, who conceptualized freedom, but, you know, in many ways, you know, didn't have a concrete notion of what exactly that freedom would look like. Um, you know, I think we're still in this moment now um, where, where there's something that there's almost an ephemera, um, ephemeral aspect of thinking about what freedom is in this moment. Um, and, and I think it's hard to, uh, you know, to characterize it in concrete historical details. Um, you know, folks are still grappling, you know, in this moment with what their definition of freedom looks like for them in this moment. Um, when we hear conversations about defunding the police, when we think about conversations about de-incarceration, um, when we think about, uh, you know, demilitarization, you know, just has three aspects of that. Um, you know, those are very different yard posts than what it was, say, you know, in the 1960s, where it was about voting rights and desegregation, you know, very different than what it was more than a century ago, um, you know, when the conversation was about, you know, freedom, you know, like in a real sense. The construct of a second civil rights movement um, or some amplification of Dr. King's work and the generation of John Lewis and James Farmer and others, uh, is, is that maybe more helpful either historically or politically? I, I think it's absolutely more accessible um, to the mainstream public because they have much more of a sense of what the civil rights movement was as opposed to the Reconstruction era. Um, you know, what I find surprising, for instance, when we have these discussions about Juneteenth, and the way that we've talked about, you know, 200 years after emancipation, et cetera, um, you know, the, the fact that most Americans um, don't really have a finite grasp of what was happening in the United States in that historical period. Now, you know, I'm someone who was born in 1965, right? So I'm right there, you know, on the cusp of the, the end of the boomer generation, in the beginning of Generation X. And, and my politics tends to lead towards the boomer generation in the sense 
that when I look at, you know, the folks like John Lewis, the late John Lewis, or I look at an Al Sharpton or any number of folks, Jesse Jackson, to name just three, you know, I I don't think of a new versus old civil rights movement, right? I, I think we're talking about a long civil rights movement that that the same kind of struggles that are taking place now, uh, you know, are the struggles that these same folks were struggling with um, previously, right? And and you know, there there are these temporary gains, you know, you know, strategic gains, if you will, that take place, you know, three steps forward and then folks get pushed back one or two steps back and, and you know, we repeat the process over and over again, you know, kind of like what Francis, you know, Fox Pimpin talks about in her book, you know, Deregulating the Poor, you know, you allow some gains, then you take back, right? And then that push goes back and forth again. Um, you know, when I listen, for instance, to the rhetoric, whether it's a stand-up or interviews or someone like Dick Gregory, you know, Dick Gregory talks about police brutality in the same language, you know, post-Watts. Um, that, you know, Black Lives Matter talks about it in 2021. So I, I don't see it as a new civil rights movement. I see a continuity, a continuance of that same struggle. New or parallel tactics to achieve something more durable? Well, I think every movement creates new technological advances, new media advances. Um, and, and so the technology has changed, right? And, and thus the means of struggle have changed. So where for the civil rights generation, you know, you know, radio, for instance, right? You know, being able to have, you know, black owned radio stations or the mimeograph machine, you know, we're cutting edge technology, right? For this generation of folks that cutting edge technology, you know, looks like, you know, social media platforms like Twitter and YouTube and TikTok and what have you. Um, the technology changes, but the human condition doesn't. <laughs> um, so what I'll say in that regard is that, you know, if there are new tactics that are derived, it's not new tactics because humans have changed. Um, it's just that humans have access to different types of, of, of technologies. When we talk about the durability of systemic solutions um, for what are fundamental and systematic problems, uh, socioeconomic, um, the criminal justice system, uh, public education, and of course, the reality of that experience that hit us so viscerally during this pandemic uh, of the disproportionate health outcomes in our communities, uh, specifically, when you think of the political side of this, um, and, I, and I do want to ask you about the cultural side of this too, but when you think of the sheer political side of this, um, when you hear discussions about a John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, or other pieces of legislation that are intended to secure some of the landmark gains of the civil rights movement. What is your reaction um, to the what what seems to be a very voting rights centric approach right now, uh, after a year where there was a more holistic assessment of the deepening and disproportionate outcomes 
I think for the vast majority of the public, voting rights is something that's much more tangible to them, right? And, and they've seen, you know, existing examples, whether we're talking about the Civil Rights Act and, and the Voting Rights Act back in 64, 65. You know, I think for many Americans, it seems tangible, right? You know, everyone was heartened um, by the way, you know, white Americans, for instance, and others closed ranks around Black Americans, you know, after... Uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and any number of these police killings, right? The the way that the nation felt, um, generally speaking, um, you know, in, in a kind of uh, state of trauma because of COVID. Um, and, and it allowed, at least for the circulation within the mainstream culture of alternatives, you know, beyond voting rights. Um, but, you know, much of our political discourse is driven by elected officials, right? And the ways that these things resonate for elected officials, um, you know, is widening the scope of, of who can vote and, and changing policy within that process. Um, and very often things like defund the police or, or de-incarceration or reparations is outside of that. Um, I think we're going to continuously have to have forces outside of the traditional electoral process the push the for country forward in these ways. I mean, these are inequities that are deeply baked, deeply embedded, you know, in American society. And, you know, three or four months of, of wokeness <laughs> amongst whites or virtual signaling, you know, amongst corporate America is not going to shift the dynamic of what has been something that's been building for more than two centuries. Um, and so it's going to have to take, I think, multifaceted processes to push this forward. Does it appear both politically and culturally that we are at a more advanced state of consciousness than we ever were in the Obama administration or in maybe any political administration since the civil rights movement? I think social media and the changes in media have allowed for a more free flowing of information, Um, but that goes both ways, right? Uh, I mean, if you think about the way that, you know, speech, for instance, free speech has been articulated in terms over the last decade of corporations being able to fund political parties. Um, there's a freer flow of truth, if you will, or freer flow of folks being able to push their own truths. Um, so folks have more access to information. Um, and, and in that sense, I think we have a nation that's much more woke than it might have been in 2008 and certainly, you know, than it was in 1968, right? Um, but, you know, we're also in a moment where ideas become part of this, you know, function of a free-flowing democracy, which is important. Um, but at the same time, we continue to devalue expertise, um, and we also devalue, you know, fundamental truths, right? You know, the one thing that the COVID moment has borne out is that in the way that, you know, science can represent a fundamental truth in some sense, um, you know, that truth sometimes doesn't have of any validity, you know, when faced in the context or interpreted within the context of, um, you know, the courts of public opinion. What was the impact of President Obama and the Obama family on black masculinity uh, about which you, you teach and you are a scholar of um, during the Obama presidency and also since he left office and what we've experienced with Donald Trump. I think Barack Obama first as in terms of being a black male uh, provided American society with an, an enduring example of black male competency 
black male introspection, uh, black male professionalism, right? It, it is not as if, you know, Barack Obama was the first person to do that, right? But given how widespread his visibility was, you know, I would argue that, you know, other than LeBron James, he's probably the most well-known black man in the world. Um, so just that image of competency, um, you know, someone who seemed always above the fray, who had a certain kind of cool um, about him, um, I, I think that's a tremendous impact. Um, but, the, you know, the other side of that is that, you know, that his what the figure that he cuts as Barack Obama you know, it's not a replacement or a stand-in for the diversity of Black masculinity that exists, you know, in the country. And while it's the perfect foil to the worst stereotypes of Black masculinity, right, it also becomes a foil to that diversity of Black masculinity, right, where folks either have to be compared to, you know, these disreputable images of Black masculinity um, in, in these more, you know, respectable images, you know, as as parlayed by Barack Obama. Um, I say the same thing about, you know, the, the first family Obama. Um, you know, the, there's no doubt, you know, everyone, you know, white America, black America took great pride in seeing this highly accomplished um, black man and black woman and, and their highly accomplished, you know, children, black girls, you know, be so visible to us for eight years and, and then continuously you know, five years or four years after they stepped away, you know, left the White House. Um, and, and it becomes also in and of itself uh, a, a the perfect idea of what a Black family should look like, right? But, but you know, Black families don't all look that way. Um, families don't all look that way. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that other family formations, and, and this is really the work that I'm arguing here, uh, of my great friend and colleague, Kathy Cohen, you know, who, who made the point that, you know, the, the, the hyper visibility of the Obama first family um, really challenged the fact that there were other functional familial units within the Black community that didn't look that same way, right? They didn't have two parents in place, right? They might have had two queer fathers or two queer you know, mothers or, you know, trans relationships, um, single-headed parent households, right? Multi-parented households in which people were not romantically linked. They, you know, they, they were all functioning, vibrant family units in and of themselves, you know, regardless of whether or not we had this one example of, of the first family Obama. What do you think explains the fact that um, President Obama's party, the Democratic Party, saw losses in both the black and brown community during the 2016 campaign and also during the 2020 campaign, um, the extent to which black and brown communities rallied around the Democrat ticket in 2008 and 2012 declined in 2016 and in 2020. If you were to look at most states nationally, um, Georgia being an exception, but if you look at um, Philadelphia, for instance, uh, if you look at many metropolises, but if you also just look at the entirety of the black and brown vote, uh, it, it fell out of step with the Democratic Party in 16 and 20. Um, to what do you attribute that? 
You know, I, I think that's a complicated question, right? And so, you know, first and foremost, I'm not trained as a political science, right? Scientist. So, you know, some of my, you know, reaction here is kind of reading what I see culturally and, and, and also anecdotal. Um, I think one of the things that mainstream, you know, media miss, you know, from 2008 to 2016 is that there was a pretty vibrant Black left critique of Barack Obama. Um, and, and it gets muted for a bunch of reasons, right? I, I would say that even some of those Black left figures muted their critiques themselves because in the context of the kind of, you know, racism that Barack Obama was, Barack Obama was facing, that they didn't want to have to contribute to that. Um, but at least by the time 2016 came by, you know, it gave them a rationale to sit out you know, 2016, right? And in some cases, 2020. Um, <clears throat> a number of folks who referenced um, W. Du Bois's, you know, 1952 essay, um, you know, where he wrote very openly about sitting out the presidential election in 1952 with Adley Stevenson and, and Dwight Eisenhower, because he didn't see either of them, you know, representing the best interests of Black America. You know, there were folks who more than 50 years later, 60 years later, picked up on that same argument. Um, and in some cases, legitimately so. I mean, one of the things that's happened in this country, particularly around national politics, is that, you know, it's, it's, it's a transactional politics, right? You know, what exactly can you do for me? And part of the critique of Barack Obama was that, you know, it just can't be the representation of you being in this space and us hoping that you'll have our back, you know, when things happen, right? And you saw those tensions come to bear, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? And, and, and how tepid at times Barack Obama's responses were to some of the shootings, right? You know, it was two, three weeks before he spoke publicly about Trayvon Martin as one example of this, right? He was very cautious in the way that he navigated these things. You know, you can go back to the beer summit of February of 2009, you know, after he went out on the limb to talk about, you know, the, the, the stupidity of police actions, right? Not the stupidity of police in relationship to Henry Louis Gates and the police officer, you know, attempting to arrest him in his own home. Um, you know, he became very hesitant to go ahead on these issues and young Black folks in particular picked up on that. And, and I think one of the things that resonated, you know, uh, among the many things that resonated for Americans with Donald Trump is that Donald Trump talked in a politics of transactional desire, right? If you vote for me, I will do this for you. I mean, literally saying it's like, you know, the Democrats haven't done anything for Black folks, right? You know, can I do any less? Um, and I thought it was really striking, you know, particularly when you saw the split in 2020 and the number of Black men who voted for Donald Trump, you know, versus Joe Biden. And very often it came down to this idea that, you know, that somehow Donald Trump spoke in a language of transaction that resonated for them, right? If I vote for you, you're going to deliver something to me, right? You know, whereas the Biden administration wasn't necessarily using the same language, right? It's the same reason why someone like Ice Cube, you know, even though he reached out, you know, reached out to both parties, it's the same reason why he's the one who gets the, the public errand with Donald Trump because Donald, you know, he handed Donald Trump something that he could look at, you know, when a contract of black for black Americans go, okay, we'll try to do something about this. You are an expert also on cultural mobilization. Um, we saw over the course of the Obama presidency, the integration of 
uh, culture and a, a kind of renaissance of uh, new ways to personify and articulate um, as, as Americans. Um, and one of the things that, that I, I'm really interested in learning from you is if you view the individualistic nature of, of our media now um, such that it precludes a we are the world um, kind of event or moment in uh, collective consciousness building and cultivating a social capital that uh, really transcends those rigid divides we have now. Um, th there have been artists who've become more vocal as Black Lives Matter um, became um, a movement um, and have have defended um, this third reconstruction. Um, there's been a, a new wave of discussion about reparations. But when we think of the cultural argument for social advances and racial equality, um, is it loud enough or is it even possible, even if it is loud enough, to break through today? Um, or, you know, I, I would, I just would say, what, what would it take to break through today in the current environment? It, it, you know, there's no question that, you know, social media platforms have changed the game in this regard. It is so easy to be of a politics of self, a politics of one, uh, that you get to champion and trumpet, you know, on a regular basis, you know, on your Instagram feed or, or TikTok or, or something of that nature. Um, it, and it also has put an incredible pressure on, on notions of, you know, the creation of content and the creation of your own intellectual property. Uh, so when I think about discussions uh, that some young folks are having about, you know, um, copywriting hashtags, um, you, know, you know, to literally have conversations about, you know, who created a hashtag first, um, as if there's actually some viable ownership, right? And, and as if there's a thing there to own, and I can't imagine, you know, you know, say King and Gandhi having a conversation sixty years with sixty years ago with each other, you know, arguing about which one of them actually owns the claim to nonviolence, um, or you know, that members of the Black Panther Party and Stokely Carmichael and, and and whoever else having rigid conversations about I created Black Power, no, I created Black Power. Um, and, and that's not necessarily a critique of this generation, but it also speaks to where politics are for us, you know, where politics have been articulated to us over the last 20 years or so as a politics of self, um, you know, your empowerment, right? Self-empowerment is a means towards your actualization of your political goals, right? We've lost really the sense of collectivity. Um, one of the things that was so brilliant about the early moments of Black Lives Matter was the fact that they articulated a version of Black politics, politics, you know, which they viewed on some level as leaderless, 
uh, you know, really going back to the work of and the activism of Ella Baker, right, who was always much more invested in creating leadership within Black communities and creating leaders, right? You know, folks being able to step up and provide leadership where, you know, where leadership was necessary. Um, and, I, and I felt some of that energy in the early parts of Black Lives Matter, right? But because Black Lives Matter circulated in social media the way it did, the way it circulated in the national media, right? It was, you know, it was inevitable that stars would emerge, right? In the context of this conversation, right? And, and those stars would be able to generate income, right? And resources based on their stardom so that now we almost talk about a hierarchy of leadership within Black Lives Matter, even as those folks within the rank and file, right? You know, would critique the idea that these folks, you know, whoever they are, are quote unquote leaders of the movement. Um, and, and I don't think we saw that same kind of tension, right? You know, clearly there were critiques of Martin Luther King's leadership, right? You know, and, and the role that he played as like this singular figure, right? But it was also articulated in the way they talked about a collective goal, right? I, I worry about whether or not that collectivity, right, is still at the forefront of the conversations that we're having now about social justice, particularly in relationship to race. Final question, Professor. If there was an artist or a group of artists capable of that kind of unifying consciousness in America, um, because they would be, if you will, the successor to President Obama or to President Reagan uh, as a cultural icon, uh, in the case of Reagan, uh, translating that celebrity into a p politics and movement. Um, who do you think that would be today? I know you've studied closely a number of contemporary and historical artists um, going back to Michael Jackson. But if you were to just look at the current landscape and say, you know, these are artists who you think, who, who are certainly having an impact in their own right now with, 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 with their own constituency, but have the potential to expand that constituency to, to, to be impactful uh, in, in that way, who, who would those artists be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I, I most typically think about in the context of musical culture um, and, you know, figures who are transcendent in that way, you know, you know, one of the ways in which they're transcendent is generational. Uh, and I'm hard pressed to think of, you know, in the last 30 years, really, of, of artists that are having generational following the way um, that some artists had prior to this period of time, right? And, and a lot of it has to do with the way that we've segmented media. Um, you know, so, you know, young Black folks don't listen to the same music that their parents do, that their grandparents do, um, because folks aren't going to a radio station that plays all that music anymore, right? Even the radio stations to the extent that folks listen to the radio are segmented in that way. Um, so, you know, I would have to think about a figure that, that has resonance across generations, um, it also speaks to, you know, critical questions around gender and sexuality and, and class. And, and quite honestly, off the top of my head, uh, I would almost have to say a figure like Beyonce, um, you know, to the extent that, you know, there are generations of folks who've watched her grow up in public. You know, so folks who, you know, might have been 15 years old when they first tapped into to Beyonce, 
Um, and they're now 35 and 40 years old, right? Uh, plus young folks that she's been able to stay resonant with. Um, the fact that she works on multiple platforms, music and film and, and, and what she's done around video. Um, and the fact that she's also been very deliberate about her politics, um, you know, speaking up at the right time, but never saying so much would suggest to me um, that there's actually much more going on. Right. And, and she's just waiting to mature and fill into the space um, where, you know, her presence could be much more impactful. Professor Neil, thank you so much for your insight today. It's a pleasure to reconnect with you. Thank you very much, Alexander. I enjoyed this.